By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks, Focus on Finance. In today's episode from Moody's offices in New York, I'll be joined by Shri Curry calling in from London. Now, Shri is the lead climate change model developer for natural catastrophe modeling firm RMS, and we'll be talking about how climate change affects natural catastrophes and also about what's happening on the natural catastrophe front in Asia Pacific in particular. I will also be speaking with Tomoya Suzuki of Moody's insurance team in Tokyo about how increasing severity of natural catastrophes is causing Japanese insurers to raise premiums for fire insurance. Fire insurance is roughly equivalent to what we would call homeowners insurance in the United States. Later from London, my co-host Miles Nelligan will talk to Brandon Holmes of Moody's insurance team and to banking team analyst Megan Fox in New York about growing net zero commitments for insurance companies and banks. Miles, hi. Welcome back from your holiday. Thanks, Danielle. It's good to be back, feeling relaxed and refreshed. So, Miles, first of all, some basics. What exactly are net zero commitments? How are we defining net zero? Yeah, well, net zero refers to the state in which the amount of greenhouse gas produced is no higher than the level removed from the atmosphere. Uh, There are various ways of removing uh, greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, including some high-tech means that that are still under development. So it doesn't mean producing no greenhouse gas emissions, just not more than can be taken out of the atmosphere. Yeah, that's correct. And how do banks and insurance companies fit into this? Well, a small but growing number of financial institutions, including several banks and insurance companies, have committed to gradually achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions across their lending, investment and underwriting portfolios by 2050. These companies also plan to set interim targets. Uh, Some, in fact, have already done so, uh, which they plan to meet by 2025 or 2030. And when you say they'll reduce greenhouse gas emissions across their portfolios, you mean... Well, insurers, for example, are significant investors and they can choose not to invest in the heaviest carbon emitting firms. Uh, Similarly, non-life insurers can adjust their underwriting so they insure fewer carbon intensive customers. And in exactly the same way, banks can choose to reduce their lending to to heavy carbon emitters. I see. And why is this so important? What are the credit risks to banks and insurance companies from the shift to lower carbon economies? Well, well Brandon and Megan will talk about this uh, in more detail later. But the basic idea is that, that both banks and insurance companies uh, could be at risk if, for example, the companies they lend to, insure or are invested in encounter financial difficulties because they're emitting more greenhouse gases than regulators will allow or or indeed, uh, then investors will tolerate. I see. So there's a risk right now as economies shift to lower carbon emissions of having investment, lending or insurance exposure in carbon intensive industries. Miles, I'm really looking forward to what Brandon and Megan have to say about all this. 
But first, I'm here with Shri Curry of RMS. Shri, welcome to Focus on Finance. Hi, Danielle. Uh, glad to be here. So, Shri, before we dive into this, just a quick note for our listeners. Shri is lead climate change model developer for RMS, which is a Moody's analytics firm. And any opinions expressed should not be attributed to Moody's investor service. So with that said, Shri, what types of natural catastrophe trends are you seeing in Asia Pacific, including Japan? Yeah, for the Asia Pacific region and Japan, our analysis relies on two types of data sets, historical data and climate model projections in warmer climates out to the end of the century. For climate model projections, uh, they reveal two particularly robust trends. One is enhanced extreme precipitation, and the other is higher density of tropical cyclones nearby Japan. The enhanced extreme precipitation appears to be from all sources, so that includes tropical cyclones and other types of weather systems. The regional distribution of these enhanced precipitation extremes is highly uncertain. So, for example, it would be difficult to say that the southern part of Japan, say Kyushu, is more affected than Hokkaido in the northern part of Japan. Tropical cyclone climate model projections suggest that there's going to be really an enhanced density of tracks nearby Japan. In other words, we expect warmer climates to have more storms nearby and making landfall in Japan. Uh, the climate model projections are consistent with what we see in the historical data that's been published in the scientific literature. So in summary, more severe flooding uh, and enhanced tropical cyclone activity nearby Japan. Got it. Okay, so more activity in general in the region leading to more severe events and particularly severe flooding, which is, is something that uh, insurers care about a lot. Could you explain a bit how climate change is connected, though, to the increase in natural catastrophes we've seen recently? I mean, going back to basics, first principle physics really tells us that as we increase greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere, uh, from pre-industrial times, which we see, that really alters the Earth's climate system on a large scale. And this large-scale change in the environment alters the frequency and severity of natural catastrophes. So if we look at economic losses, for example, we see them trending upwards. But actually deciphering the precise connection to climate change is a challenge because economic losses mix in various factors like growth in the economic exposure. However, progress is being made as to specifically quantifying the role that climate change plays in the recent increase in activity. First, in the broader scientific community, new frameworks are being created to try to understand the attribution of climate change to recent events. In the risk modeling context where we work, we currently have various solutions for quantifying the impact of climate change on recent activity, and we're constantly innovating and we're improving our techniques going forward. Thanks so much for clarifying that. And one last question for you. Which types of natural catastrophes, so hurricanes, droughts, wildfires, for example, so which of those are the most exposed to climate change? Climate change impacts a broad set of perils, all in their own unique way. So for example, in North Atlantic hurricane, we expect climate change to lead to more intense storms. We expect wildfires in California and other key states to increase in frequency. Increasing extreme precipitation in the U.S. will lead to more catastrophic flooding. We expect rising sea levels combined with vertical land movement to have a dramatic effect on the risk in the U.S. Gulf states. 
Other perils have less distinctive climate change signatures, namely European windstorm and to some degree severe convective storms, which includes tornadoes in the U.S. The coming years should shed more light on these perils, however. Shri, thank you so much. And we're now joined by Tomoya Suzuki in Tokyo. Tomoya, welcome. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me on the show. Tomoya, you cover a portfolio of credits for Moody's that includes both Japanese banks and PNC insurance companies. And you recently published a report about how Japanese PNC insurers are raising insurance premiums because of rising natural catastrophe risk. It's actually specifically what's called fire insurance premiums that have gone up in Japan. But fire insurance premiums cover a lot more than just fire. Can you explain what fire insurance is? My, my understanding is that it's similar to what we would call homeowners insurance in the U.S. Well, you're right. Fire insurance in Japan does not only cover fire, as it's named, but covers various types, including damage to personal belongings and property from things like accident in the home, flooding, theft, lightning, and gas explosions. So... What's caused the increase in premiums? I'm going to guess claims and insured losses have been rising in Japan. Good guess, Daniel. Natural catastrophes has been more frequent and intense in Japan over recent years. And that has hurt the performance of fire insurance businesses at Japanese PNC insurers. Fire insurance is the only business line that is not profitable for Japanese PNC insurers. They had record high domestic natural catastrophe claims during fiscal year ended March 2019 and 2020. So insurers are moving to address climate risks through the repricing of premiums in an environment of rising fire insurance claims stemming from natural catastrophes. And how much of a jump are we talking about? I mean, how much have fire insurance premiums increased? Well, in 2021, a Japanese insurance industry organization announced a record high increase in its advisory rate of 10.9 percentage points on average. And in case any listeners are wondering what the advisory rate is, Japanese PNC insurers set consumer fire insurance premium rates based on the advisory rate from the industry organization combined with insurers' own expense ratio. This advisory rate will likely increase further over coming years, but insurers won't raise premiums all that quickly. They are going to raise premiums only gradually to address climate risks because social pressure to keep insurance affordable and widely available will prevent them from increasing prices drastically to make fire lines profitable in the short time. Yeah, it's interesting that it's going to take a while for the premium increases to catch up. Exactly. So the PNC companies really can't just raise it suddenly all at once to make fire lines profitable. And for similar reasons, it will also take time for new location-specific pricing system to evolve because it will be difficult to strike a balance between insurers' needs for premiums to reflect risks and social pressure for insurance to be affordable and available to people in risky areas. I see. So 
in general, the idea is to have location-based pricing that customers perceive maybe as more fair. I have just one more question on this. Another way insurers mitigate risk of natural catastrophes in the U.S. is by non-renewing policies in certain really risky areas. They also tighten terms and conditions of their policies. Is there any similar dynamic in Japan? Okay, so I touched on fire premium rate increase and location-specific pricing. I could also mention one more thing that insurers will be doing to mitigate their risks from natural catastrophe losses, shortening the policy duration. So insurers will shorten policy durations to five years from the current 10 years. Until October 2015, policies used to last up to 36 years in line with the duration of mortgage loans. This will allow insurers to more frequently reprice premiums to reflect evolving natural catastrophe risks as climate conditions change. Wow, 36 years. PNC policy durations in the future in Japan are really going to be much, much shorter than they were up until just a few years back, it sounds like. Tomoya, thank you so much. And we're now joined by my co-host, Miles Nelligan, here to talk to Brandon Holmes and Megan Fox about insurance companies and banks' net zero commitments. Thanks, Danielle. And hello and welcome to Megan and Brandon. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us today. Hi, Miles. Hi, Miles. Great to be here. Uh, Now, Megan, uh, you've written a report about the banking sector's net zero plans. uh, And Brandon, you've done the same for insurers. Now, as we heard, net zero in this context refers to banks and insurers achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions across their lending, investment and underwriting portfolios by 2050. Uh, So with that out of the way, uh, uh, Brandon, let's start with you. Uh, Perhaps you could give our listeners some context around why insurers see this as important from a credit perspective. Yes, sure. I mean, primarily insurers are are managing the risk in, in their business that arises from carbon transition. And we see three primary areas of impact for insurers. The first is through the investments they hold in their balance sheets. Second is through regulatory and strategic risk that arises as a result of carbon transition. And third, through their insurance underwriting portfolios. On the first area, investments, insurers hold large investment portfolios in a range of assets, including debt, equities, real estate. And these include exposure to assets in carbon intensive sectors. So as the economies transition, valuations of investments in these carbon-intensive assets could come under pressure or become more volatile, which increases market and credit risk for for the insurers. This asset risk is higher for life insurers than non-life insurers because of their, their higher asset leverage. Insurers also face rising expectations from regulators and investors around the way they manage carbon emissions arising in their portfolios. And customers of savings and investment products are demanding a greater variety of sustainable investment products with insurers having to adapt their strategies to keep up with these customer demands and also at the same time ensure they don't fall foul of of greenwashing, for example. Okay, and what about the the underwriting side of the insurance business, uh, which is uh, arguably their core activity? Uh, How how does the, the, the greenhouse gas emissions issue affect that? Yes, yeah, so, so this applies mostly to, to non-life insurers. So, so while these insurers have less investment exposure, they do have greater exposure through their, their underwriting portfolios. 
So this could in- impact them, for example, through, through lower business volumes if they currently have significant exposure to, to a customer base that is in a carbon-intensive sector and they're not able to transition that customer base in line with the, the transition of the economy. Um, but, but in addition to the, those business volume issues, um, there's also a risk around providing insurance on new technologies or companies involved in new technologies that are necessary for to support the transition. So, so, so green energy, for example, or, or carbon capture and storage technologies, areas where there is limited historical data on, on, on sort of claims and loss patterns, which makes it more challenging for insurers to model and, and therefore price for this risk. Uh, so there's lots for the industry to think about there. Um, and all in all, it sounds like having a good net zero plan would, uh, would be an advantage. Yes, that's right. In our report, we outline how we think that insurers that make progress against net zero plans are better positioned to manage carbon transition risk. Typically, because they'll, they'll devote greater time and resources to, to measuring and reducing um, exposure to carbon intensive assets and customers. And also the increased focus will help them react more quickly to, to unexpected changes in, in the speed of transition. We also, in looking at net zero plans, I, I guess we, we think that some plans are more credible than others. And, and the most credible ones really are, are based on robust and transparent frameworks, which include measurable interim targets that, that provide a, a level of accountability and ability to, to track against the plan. And also importantly, the, the, the credible plans include or address the full scope of emissions. So that's um, both financed emissions, which, which arise from the investment portfolio, insured emissions, as well as those generated by the insurer's own operations. So, so scope one and two, one, two and three emissions. And also to, to keep these plans credible over time, um, insurers need to continue updating them for for changes in the tools and methods of, of me- measuring emissions, which are very much still under development. Brandon, thanks very much for that overview. Um, now let's take a look at the banks. Uh, Megan, how are they affected by the transition to a lower carbon economy? Sure. So similar to insurance companies, banks face uh, you know the same carbon transition risk primarily through their uh, loan and investment portfolios. And as the economy decarbonizes, um, if they don't manage that risk, they could face declining asset quality and asset prices um, for you know loans and investments that are concentrated in carbon heavy uh, heavy sectors. That could drive uh, loan losses, lower profitability, and in extreme cases, even weaker capitalization. So credit implications could be large for banks that do not actively manage their exposure to the transition to a low-carbon future. So uh, just as for insurers, um, shifting to more climate-friendly finance will be um, advantageous for banks as well. That's right. Those banks will be best positioned to preserve their credit quality and take advantage of new business opportunities that will come with sustainable finance, green bond financing, and the like. Okay, but but as you mentioned in your report, uh, climate-friendly finance doesn't come entirely without risk. Yes, that's also an important point. So even banks with ambitious climate targets will face a number of unique risks um, as they move down the path towards their net zero commitments. We could see this um, come through the channel of underwriting risk associated with sustainable finance commitments that are an important part of banks' net zero um, plans. 
This could come from concentration risk from overvalued assets. For example, a green bubble where you see banks chasing some of the same deals um, to meet those sustainable finance commitments, um, as well as you know, uh, increasing legal and regulatory risk as banks are expected to comply with uh, increasingly new and complex climate regulations. They also face a number of reputational risks. So their net zero commitments bring uh, inherently increased scrutiny from their um, committed targets and their plans and disclosures from investors and regulators. They could also run the risk of uh, being accused of greenwashing if they're unable to demonstrate the impact of their of their efforts here. And then, you know, if they if they fail to achieve their interim targets or their um, make progress on their plans or if their efforts have unintended impact, that could also have, you know, unintended reputational consequences. Okay, so so lots of uh, potential pitfalls to navigate. Um, So far, we've heard how decarbonization is a source of credit risk to banks and insurance companies. uh, And uh, and we know that having a credible net zero plan is uh, is an advantage. I, I want now to take a look at where we are with net zero planning. Uh, as I understand it, it's still quite early in this process. Uh, uh, Brandon, uh, how are the insurers going about this? Yeah, the, the majority of insurers that have net zero plans have done so as part of United Nations convened alliances. So there are two main alliances for the insurers. There's the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance, which focuses on reducing financed emissions from investment portfolios. And then there's the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, which targets insured emissions from from the underwriting portfolios. These are both voluntary organizations that insurers join and and they make commitments within the context of um, that framework to reach net zero by 2050. Some insurers, primarily those in North America, have also announced net zero plans, but are not part of the, the alliances per se. I think in reviewing the plans generally, we think that the alliance members tend to have more robust and detailed net zero plans and certainly seem to benefit from the structure provided by the alliances. Okay, thanks, Brandon. Um, My next question is, uh, quite simply, um, how on earth do banks and insurers actually go about reducing their their finance and insured emissions? Uh, It sounds like an enormously difficult task. Yes, sure. The the challenge for for financial institutions is that their exposure is really indirect and it comes through the the assets and companies in in their portfolios. They have some tools to to manage this and and the three main means of of reducing emissions um, are firstly exclusion. And this is really to to divest or discontinue doing business with um, carbon intensive firms um, or or assets. there's also engagement, which is to actually engage with the, these companies to support them in their own decarbonization. And, and also there's investing in green assets or financing um, transition supporting assets, which, which can, can help with this. I think if, if we look at the, the alliances, the main focus really is primarily on engagement because it's necessary for all participants in value chains to reduce their own emissions. In net zero, there's also um, carbon neutralization as, as a tool. So once firms reach a residual level of carbon in their portfolios that they cannot reduce by 2050, 
2050, carbon removal is a tool to actually achieve net zero. So, so this can be achieved by, by technology, for example, that removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and, and stores it um, securely. The, the challenge with, with this is that some of these technologies are not yet readily available at scale. So it's an aspect of, of the net zero commitment or pledge, which is really dependent on, on future developments. But then that's certainly a, a fourth tool that they have. Okay. And how about on the banking side, Megan? Uh, is, is the process similar? Yeah, on the bank side, there there's the uh, Net Zero Banking Alliance, which, similar to the insurance alliances, are part of the United Nations Environmental Program Finance Initiative. And these alliances are helpful in supporting the implementation of decarbonization strategies, and they really foster collaboration and knowledge sharing among alliance members. You know, similarly, a voluntary alliance um, through October of this year about 122 banks worldwide have signed on uh, to the alliance. We see the majority uh, coming from uh, Europe, uh, which has about 65 signatories, uh, followed by Asia and North America, which have about uh, 24 and 18, respectively. But the Net Zero Banking Alliance is, is helpful because it prescribes that members set interim targets, which are really helpful if you think about how long-term these commitments are. And Brandon outlined a number of kind of hurdles and tasks that have to be done along the way to be able to achieve that long-term target. So the interim target setting that we see as prescribed by Alliance membership really does highlight some of the progress, the near-term progress that banks can make today. And similar to insurers, banks have a number of strategies uh, at their disposal to employ. There are some challenges here uh, in that these strategies are somewhat unproven um, and untested. Um, we do see the majority of banks who've published detailed net zero plans today really focus on uh, customer engagement as really the key strategy they, they plan to use to reduce um, the carbon that's financed through their their loan and investment commitments, but there are still you know details that are missing from these plans. Exactly what engagement looks like and how and when banks might ultimately decide to choose divestiture as an option if a borrower um, is unwilling or unable to to reduce their own carbon emissions. You know, I have a question about this long term and really still nascent path to net zero. It seems government and regulatory support is going to be pretty key to achieving these targets, right? Megan, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, we think that um, ultimately banks net zero plans, as they've outlined them, um, do rely on government and regulatory policy to really blaze the path um, to net zero for the various sectors that they finance. We are seeing uh, the uh, authorities in the EU be more proactive in, in making progress here. And that, you know, in some ways allows EU banks to move forward with their net zero planning with more clarity and more stakeholder alignment. And you do see that reflected in their, um, their, their you know, majority membership in the Net Zero Banking Alliance. Brandon, how do you see the role of government support in terms of helping insurance companies meet their targets? Yeah, it's very, very similar to what Megan outlined for banks. It, it's key that, that regulators and governments um, help drive this forward. An additional item I, I'd add is um, 
you know, policymakers' roles in encouraging or even mandating um, broad and granular emissions disclosure by, by, by companies will be quite important in insurers being able to, to measure and manage exposures in their, their under, underlying underwriting and investment portfolios. Got it. Brandon, Megan, and Miles, thank you so much for your insights. And thank you also to Tamoya and Shri. And a big thank you to our listeners for tuning in. To explore the topics in this podcast further, please check out the show notes at moody's.com slash podcasts. And please join us again soon for future episodes of Focus on Finance. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.